The Fanboy, episode 123. Everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 123 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? Uh, I got to start things off with a quick mea culpa, a quick apology. I'm sorry that I was not able to deliver an episode last week. Just a quick peek behind the curtain. When I originally agreed to relaunch this podcast, it was partially because I thought I was going to have a plethora of piñatas, no, a plethora of time with which to produce this every week for you. And I was very excited for that. But what's gone on here is, uh, well, the school situation due to the pandemic has been completely erratic. And rather than have all of this time on my own while the kids are at school and my wife is at work, as I used to have... Uh, because of the nature of the pandemic, they keep on shutting down my children's school and my wife's school at different alternating intervals. And sometimes it's just one of their classes. Sometimes it's two. Sometimes it's three. But what ends up what that ends up meaning is uh, I haven't had more than four days straight where everyone is actually out of the house doing stuff. Every week seems to get cut short. Just when I think, okay, I'm going to start having enough sort of solo time to invest in all the stuff that I want to do, lo and behold, somebody's school gets shut down and I got to be around for them to help with virtual classrooms and and kind of be on call as dad and father and, uh, oh, that's the same thing, isn't it? And husband man. And on top of that, my my mom has had two different surgeries on her eyes lately, and she's needed extra support from me as well. It's just it's been uh, it's been a hectic few months, and namely these last couple of weeks have been just especially sort of uh, unpredictable. And uh, you know, it, it it has meant that it has been much more difficult for me to find the time to dedicate to give this here show all of the energy and focus and effort that it deserves. Because you guys have been very patient, and I've had folks reach out to me going, when's it coming? When's the next episode? What's going on? And uh, listen, I'm trying to get back on the weekly grind, but it's been a little hard so far in 2021. So for now, I'm sorry for keeping you waiting. I will try my best to stick to the weekly thing. But right now, it's just been very hard to find the time and energy to do this when I'm kind of getting pulled in several different directions right now. But, okay, here's what I want to start with. I need to talk about the Kong versus Godzilla teaser. I need us to hang our heads and bow our heads in prayer as we hope that Kong versus Godzilla lives up to the hype of that awesome teaser we got since you and I last spoke. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it, but Kong vs. Godzilla has released a brand new teaser trailer, and it looks badass beyond belief. But the reason I feel like there's some prayer that needs to happen here is that I also thought the trailer for Godzilla King of the Monsters looked badass beyond belief. In fact, if you go back to the episode of this show that we did... Shortly after the, that San Diego Comic-Con trailer for, for Godzilla King of the Monsters came out, like I guess two years ago now, 
Um, you'd hear me ranting and raving about how epic it looks and that amazing cast and the great song selection and the tone seems amazing. And that movie for me ultimately ended up being kind of a convoluted mess where just like in the first Godzilla film of this new series, the human drama, the human element totally sort of detracts and distracts from what we're here to see, which is our favorite kaiju destroying a city and all of that epic goodness. Um, So here's hoping Kong versus Godzilla actually lives up to the promise of its teaser trailer. But, uh, you know, unfortunately now I'm just a little skeptical, you know, because I even had the same thing with the first Godzilla movie, that Gareth Edwards Godzilla movie. I loved that teaser. I watched it several times, and that really cool, like, the way they finally reveal him at the end of the teaser and all his glory letting out the uh, signature you know, Godzilla scream. I mean, goosebumps, just goosebumps all around. So in general, I've been on board with all of the marketing for these MonsterVerse movies so far, but really there's only been one that I actually cared for, and that was Kong Skull Island. So here's hoping that Kong versus Godzilla feels more like Kong Skull Island than the last two standalone Godzilla movies. Because just based on that teaser, This is going to be one epic battle, and I cannot wait to see. By the way, in case you're wondering, I'm King Kong all the way. I've always been a Kong fan, so I am firmly on Team Kong. And I wonder what side you're on. Let me know. I'm just curious what the breakdown of of the people who hear me and listen to me. What's the ratio of Team Godzilla to Team Kong? I really want to know. Find me on social media. Find me on uh, come to the Revengers Lounge on Facebook. Let me know. Because I'm Team Kong all the way, and I think our boy is going to beat the hell out of Godzilla until, finally, they have to join forces against Doomsday. I mean, against uh, Mecha Godzilla, because that is the big theory, right? There have been some screen grabs people have caught from that teaser that seem to reveal that the ultimate baddie is Mecha Godzilla. And in the teaser, there's this quick thing about how, you know, Godzilla's gone crazy, and we don't know why. Something is provoking him that we can't see. And I have a feeling that since they sort of established Godzilla as like kind of Earth's protector and Earth's savior in a way through the first two Godzilla films, I wonder if the thing that's provoking him that we cannot see is like a top secret military program. He knows that they're making a mecha Godzilla. He knows that they're using t- technology to create an abomination And Godzilla is showing up trying to thwart those efforts or trying to teach a lesson to humanity for losing itself to technology that's just going to destroy the world. Which, if you ask me, there's some interesting allegorical elements to that. And we all know how I like a new, a good allegory, how I love when blockbuster entertainment somehow manages to touch on something that's happening in real life. And right now, you know, a big debate is, you know, technology in our society and how it's helpful, but it's also hurting and it's not always being used for good. And I wonder if part of the message here is Godzilla is kind of coming out to um, take a stand against destructive technology and our never ending hunger for war and weapons of mass destruction. So, uh, I mean, listen, that's just me getting a little uh, preachy and esoteric. But to me, it just seems very possible that that is sort of the uh, metaphorical territory 
that this Godzilla versus Kong movie is going to go. So we'll see what happens. But I do, you know, I think it's it's pretty much a safe bet that these two aren't going to be fighting the whole time. That there's, you know, Kong is being brought in to defend everyone from Godzilla because Godzilla has seemingly lost his mind. But then we're going to find out that Godzilla hasn't lost its mind. It's a he or a she. I forget now. Um but it's really just here to stop Mechagodzilla. And when Mechagodzilla finally reveals itself, Kong and Godzilla are going to join forces. That's what I think is going to happen. And for those of you Team Godzilla folks who are so certain that I think Kong's going to whoop that ass, uh, I think, listen, I think Godzilla will have an excuse. Godzilla seems to be driven and motivated by something bigger than this fight. Godzilla seems to be trying to stop something. So Godzilla is not 100% into this fight with Kong. Godzilla is trying to stop the inception of Mecha Godzilla. So I think that kind of gives an opening for our boy Kong to get some nice... Uh, Land some nice blows there, all right? God, that was nerdy. But uh, something that's cool, though, is I'm not the only one who's excited about this Kong versus Godzilla trailer. Uh, I'm going to read a little excerpt from an article on Cinema Blend, which is fitting, because later today, I will be interviewing Cinema Blend's own Sean O'Connell. And why am I doing that? Because he wrote the book, Release the Snyder Cut, which is arriving in mere days. So I'm looking forward to sharing that interview with you. But here is a clip from his website from Cinema Blend, not a clip, an excerpt, about the success of the Kong vs. Godzilla trailer. Uh, they say that within 24 hours of the trailer drop, Godzilla vs. Kong racked up 15.8 million views on the Warner Brothers YouTube channel, along with an additional 9.8 million on the legendary Warner Brothers UK official Godzilla vs. Kong and HBO Max Twitter accounts. Luis Fernandez, which is so cool to see Luis referenced in a Cinema Blend article because Luis is a longtime listener of this show. And Luis is a friend of mine. We have a, you know, we have like a long running sort of DM. We check in on each other every few months. And he once alluded to the fact that watching and listening to me somehow inspired him to become the sort of correspondent online that he's become. And a lot of people now pay a lot of attention to Luis Fernandez. And Luis, look at you. You're kicking ass, my friend. You're getting quoted. Your, your vantage point on what's going on in the entertainment business is being cited in articles about the entertainment business. So Luis, just as a side note, I'm very proud of you, brother. I, I, I've watched you start this venture online, and for some reason you've credited me with some inspiration for that, and you kind of alluded to the fact that there's one thing in particular I said on one of these shows that sort of helped light that fire under you, and you still haven't told me what it is, by the way. So I want to know, but either way, no matter what I said, if it had any hand in helping you kind of push forward and pursue this passion that you've got, I mean, it's an honor to have contributed, and you are just, it's so impressive the things you're doing, Luis. But yes, Luis Fernandez recorded the results on Twitter, sharing that it could very well be the biggest debut ever for Warner Brothers. A little more information on this. Since the initial numbers have flowed in on Monday of last week, Godzilla vs. Kong's trailer numbers on the Warner Brothers YouTube has risen to close to 40 million views. Now, let's put that into perspective, okay? 40 million views. Um, the Batman DC Fandom teaser that, you know, so many of us were so excited about, it came out back in August, so it's now been several months. 
Um, it currently sits at 27.7 million views on YouTube now, five months later. Whereas Godzilla vs. Kong's viewership nearly beat its, uh, the Batman's current count in the matter of a single day. So I know that that sounds crazy to us. If you're checking out this show, chances are you're really into cape shit like I am. And you really love superheroes and you think superheroes are the biggest, coolest thing in the world. And a lot of times it feels like that, right? These last few years, it feels like if you're not a superhero movie, no one's going to watch you, right? And yet the Batman reboot that's coming out has garnered less attention thus far than Godzilla vs. Kong. Who knew that there was this much of an appetite for the, the, this monster-verse crossover? And yet, it, what makes it also equally intri intriguing is that Godzilla King of the Monsters sort of underperformed at the box office. It was kind of one of those things where, similar to Aquaman, which was that if they had just been a little more patient and not started production on Godzilla vs. Kong so early... Who knows if they, that movie would have even been made based on how Godzilla King of the Monsters did. And you know, the, the, the comparison with Aquaman is Justice League, that had they not already had Aquaman in the can, if they would have just gone based on how Justice League performed, chances are they might have just scrapped the Aquaman concept. And Godzilla King of the Monsters was another sort of big disappointment. So this Godzilla versus Kong movie, we're sort of lucky it's it's coming at all. You know, we're, we're lucky that Warner Brothers stacked the production so close to one another that it was kind of too late to cancel this epic fight based on how Godzilla King of the Monsters did. So it's just interesting to think that there's all of this buzz around this, and I really hope it lives up to it. The, the teaser looked absolutely badass. But okay, so that was just my own little personal musing that I really wanted to start on. And now we got to touch on some other big news that's popped up since we last spoke, including news that arrived this morning. So it's a good thing I waited this long to record for you. Um, the Snyder Cut finally has a release date. There's been a lot of hemming and hawing about, well, will it be arriving in March or not? Because all of a sudden, you know, everyone was thinking it was going to be March 26th. Why is that? Because that would be the fifth anniversary of the release of Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. And it would seem sort of fitting to kind of have this film come out on a major Snyder anniversary. So, you know, a lot of people were expecting that. But then when that Godzilla versus Kong teaser came out, that had the March 26th release date, which began a whole uproar online as people started wondering, did this replace Justice League? Did, you know, what's going on? Why, why, why are they suddenly, you know, why are they announcing all these release dates while Zack Snyder's Justice League continues to be relatively ignored by HBO Max's promotional wing? You know, what's up with that? There were a lot of questions about that once the Kong versus Godzilla, t you know, film was announced to be coming out on March 26th. And then something really weird happened. Within a week, within a matter of days of releasing this attention-grabbing teaser that announces March 26th, they said, well, actually, it's going to be March 31st. We're going to delay it a week. We're going to give it a week in theaters before it arrives on HBO Max, and it'll be coming out on March 31st. So now this once again opened up March 26th for will this be when Justice League comes out? As it turns out, it's not. 
The new release date is March 18th, 2021. And of course, to me, that just seems a little odd. Like if you're you're only off by one week, so why not just give it that next Friday night bow, that March 25th or 26th, whatever that is, that is the anniversary weekend of BVS. Why not try to seize that? I mean, this whole thing is a love letter to Snyder's fans and to everyone who campaigned so hard for the release of this movie. So it just seems a little odd to do it a, mu- a week early when the week of is wide open. But, you know, uh, whatever the case, it's probably good news, right? Because it means that, you know, it means that the Snyder Cut will have about two weeks without any direct competition on HBO Max to compete for eyeballs. So that's pretty good. And honestly, I think it's going to need it because another bit of news that's come out since we last spoke is that it is not going to be a miniseries after all. After some teasing, after some quotes from THR about how executives were really into Snyder's pitch that included cliffhangers and, and a much more episodic structure and, and you know wanting to turn this into a four or six part miniseries event. After all those quotes and after all the time I spent thinking about how that's actually a great way to have this thing build up some buzz and attract some casual viewers who maybe weren't absolutely keen on what Zack Snyder was cooking, but would at least watch the first episode and then decide if they want to stick around for further installments. You know, I was very excited for that plan, but we're back to it being one long movie. And when I say long, I mean it. It's We're looking at a four-hour picture here. And, you know, my feelings on that are that it's a little bit... Uh, You know, it's going to make this a tougher pill to swallow for non-hardcore fans, which is fine. You know, many argue that this isn't really meant for casual fans anyway, that this is really meant for the hardcore Snyder fans who've been campaigning for this version of the movie for the last three and a half years. And if that's the way they look at it, then yeah, sure, those people are going to watch it no matter what version you put it in. If you if you released 10 minutes of that movie every week, people would watch it in that form if you had to. You know, so in, in, in that hardcore fan base, they're going to watch it no matter what. But when it comes to trying to draw a broader audience, uh, a four-hour movie is a much taller ask than a you know a miniseries event and my feelings are as soon as I heard that my interest shriveled up a little bit because now this is going to be a little bit harder for me to to enjoy and what I mean by that is I like watching movies straight through it's just how I am you know I've spoken about it on this show before but I'm I'm with Orson Welles when it comes to a a filmmaker trying to lull their audience into a dream state throughout the movie. I love getting lost in a movie and going on that ride with the beginning, middle, and end uninterrupted. That's just how I am. It's how I like to do things. I hate pausing a movie in the middle of it and coming back to it the next day. To me, once I do that, it's like trying to jump off a roller coaster in the middle. You know, I, it's, it's just it, the ride doesn't feel the same when you keep stopping. And I bring that up because, you know, when, when I when I voiced some of these uh, concerns over on Twitter, a lot of people were like, what's the big deal? It's four hours. You can pause it. You could do whatever you want. And it's like, yeah, sure, I could do that. 
But I, that's not how I like to watch movies. And people also like to bring up, oh, but everyone binges stuff. Everyone watches, you know, four or five hours of entertainment a day. Look at all these statistics I could screen grab for you. And it's like, that's great for those people. But the truth is, I don't do that. I don't binge shows like that. For me, I top out at like two or three episodes before I kind of need to take a break and come back later. And not to mention... I also, you know, I, I have a schedule that doesn't necessarily leave me four wide open hours to watch a movie uninterrupted. So for me, just personally, and I made this clear when I tweeted about it too, like this is just for me. I wish them well. But for me, this changes the, the, the you know, what kind of experience this is going to be for me. A four-hour movie is much more difficult for me to get excited about than a weekly miniseries event. It's just me. Um, but, you know, th there is hope. There is hope because there is talk that even though it'll be one long movie, it's still broken up rather episodically. You know, a couple months back at the end of December, Zack Snyder, you know, uh, vetoed out an image of Batman of Ben Affleck's Batman with the term Justice League Book One on it. And there's this idea that it's going to be broken into Book One, Book Two, Book Three, Book Four. Possibly, I think, I think, I think it might be one book per character, possibly. And I guess if that's how he's going to structure the story, uh, I guess whenever they switch books, I'll just kind of naturally stop and then come back later on. Or maybe I'll watch two books at a time or something, you know? But, um, you know, for me, it's just, it's very different because you know, I liked the idea that Snyder was going to reshape the story, that this wasn't just going to be one linear four-hour event, that he was actually taking all that footage from 2016 and reshaping it so it plays out more like a TV series. You know, it wasn't just a matter of we're just going to hit a pause in between certain elements of the story. It was that the actual storyteller himself, Snyder himself, was going to reshape this in a way that made it sort of build and kind of have a growing momentum as we head towards that finale. You know, that to me was like, that's exactly how I would love to take this story in. Especially because, remember, I just rewatched BVS Ultimate Edition. And as much credit, uh, credit, as much credit as I try to give that film for some of the things that it strived for, I still have a very tough time sitting through the fast. The fast. Wow, I'm just very uh, sloppy this morning. Uh, but I had a very tough time sitting through the first two and a half hours of that movie. I've always had a tough time sitting through the first two and a half hours of that movie, even when it was the theatrical cut and it was only two and a half hours. It just for me. You know, the best part of that film is in its third act, once Doomsday arrives and our heroes unite and all of that stuff starts to happen. For me, therefore, the idea of a four-hour Snyder film just fills me with, with feelings of dread of like, oh no, are the first three hours of this movie going to feel like the beginning of BVS? Am I, is this going to be like a real chore for me to have to sit through until I finally get to the stuff I'm dying to see? I don't know, but um, we'll see. We'll see. But either way, for those of you who've been a little out of the loop and for those of you who just kind of wanted me to follow up on these threads that I've been following ever since this film got officially announced last year, you know, that is the latest. It's coming out on March 18th. Uh, 
and it is no longer a miniseries event. It is confirmed to be one four-hour movie. Um, something else that came up since then is Zack Snyder has has come out and talked about what exactly led to his departure from the project. And I'll start with the quote, and then I'll talk to you by why it really sort of struck a chord with me. In a recent interview, Snyder said, I was just kind of done with it. I was in this place of knowing my family needs me more than this bullshit, and I just need to honor them and do the best I can to heal that world. I had no energy to fight the studio and fight for the movie. Literally zero energy for that. I really think that's the main thing. I think there's a different world where I stayed and kind of tried, and I'm sure I could have because every movie's a fight, right? I was used to that. But I just did not have the energy. There was no fight in me. I had been beaten by what was going on in my life, and I just didn't want to. I didn't care to. That was kind of where I was. So first of all, those quotes are powerful for me because it's, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing to hear from a man who lost his daughter to suicide and, and hear, you know, how his life was sort of coming apart at that time and how he just didn't have it in him to fight. Um, you know, that's just very touching and moving, just naturally speaking. But it also jumped out at me because, like, that's more or less what I thought had happened. You know, th there have been many times on this show when discussing that part of DC history on film where this issue of why he ultimately walked away has come up. And I've always said, like, he didn't quit because his daughter committed suicide. He quit because of the confluence of issues that were coming together at once. He had been fighting for this movie already for over a year. Since the beginning of 2016, when they butchered his cut of BVS and then rewrote the script for Justice League 1 and 2, turning it into 1, and all of the on-the-fly reshoots and rewrites that were happening through 2016, and then finally getting to show his rough cut in the beginning of February just for his daughter to do what she did, I think, a month later. I think it was March of 2017. Like, he'd already been through the ringer on this project, fighting tooth and nail for his vision, while having to compromise and say goodbye to elements that had meant so much to him over time. That, sure, he could have stayed on. He had the option, kind of like he said in this quote. You know, he could have stayed on and tried, but honestly, with the death of his daughter... The fight was just pulled out from him. And, you know, that's that's more or less what I always thought was the case. I always figured it was the confluence of that fight. Plus, you know what, guys, if this is what if I if this is not the movie you want, if you're you have your your heart set on a completely different kind of movie, I can't keep fighting for this. So go ahead, do whatever you're going to do. I'm out of here. And, you know. That, that's something that's incredibly hard to, to argue with. And, you know, I know that there was a little bit of debate because some folks still don't buy that reasoning. There are folks who are still convinced that he was basically shown the door or fired or forced out way before that. And listen, I've heard I, I've, I've definitely heard information that corresponds with that, that essentially throughout a lot of the 2016 shoot. Heading into the 2017 uh, reveal of the rough cut, 
you know, the studio had more or less sort of already by then barged in and trampled all over whatever he was doing to the point where he was, you know, they, they practically gave him no choice. And in a way, you know, he was only the director in name by that point. You know, it's real ugly stuff. But regardless of whether or not he was forced out by the studio and essentially fired, or if he walked away because his heart was not in it, what a terrible situation that was. And how wonderfully poetic is it going to be to finally get to see his version and you know, he finally put some sort of, some closure on such an ugly chapter in this whole saga. So I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, my heart goes out to Snyder. I cannot imagine what it was like to be in that situation where your artistic life, which has already been under siege for over a year, it, and, and your personal life collide in such tragic ways where you just decide, I got to just step away from this, you know? And I always knew that it was specifically Justice League that he wanted to step away from. Remember, I was always pointing out that clearly he still at, had it in him to keep directing and producing content because he made that iPhone movie within like two months of leaving Justice League. So, you know, again, this coming out just confirms things I've been saying for a while, which were all just hunches, really. But, you know. I think we, we now have some real clarity on what happened with Snyder in the beginning part of 2017 that saw him just finally go, this Justice League thing is just not for me anymore. I, I, I don't have it in me to fight this fight. Um, one other cool thing is that we got a brand new synopsis for the film. Along with the release date this morning, we got a brand new, slightly reworked synopsis that I would like to read for you before I move on to the next topic. So the, ne the new synopsis is, In Zack Snyder's Justice League, Determined to ensure Superman's ultimate sacrifice was not in vain, Bruce Wayne aligns forces with Diana Prince with plans to recruit a team of metahumans to protect the world from an approaching threat of catastrophic proportions. The task proves more difficult than Bruce imagined as each of the recruits must face the demons of their own pasts to transcend that which has held them back, allowing them to come together finally forming an unprecedented League of Heroes. Now united, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Cyborg, and The Flash may be too late to save the planet from Steppenwolf, Dasad, and Darkseid, and their dreadful intention. So look, that sounds like a badass team-up movie. It sounds like a Justice League movie that a fan could have come up with many years ago in a fever dream. And for me, reading that synopsis is honestly bittersweet because once again, we know that this is this is a monumental event. If you're a DC fan and you love these characters, any type of thing that's going to bring your Justice League together to fight against a common evil is a big deal. And reading this quote and you're reading this synopsis. It's, it's bittersweet because once again, here we are, we're, we're getting the team together. But rather than this being like the beginning of a whole new chapter in DC on film, where now we have this Justice League present as a centerpiece of DC on film, and we're going to see the continued adventures of each of these heroes, and we're going to eventually see them fight other forces. You know, instead of that, once again, we're just looking at a film 
that's kind of one and done, just like the theatrical cut was. So this is going to be two different times where we get a Justice League movie that seems to imply that there's more to come and none of what's to come is going to actually come. You know, it's it's just it's crazy. This whole situation, I've used this word a lot over the years, but it's just unprecedented. It's unprecedented that the theatrical cut of Justice League presented us with an alternate plan at the end that involved the Legion of Doom. And again, and we had Bruce Wayne talking about the Hall of Justice and how we need to leave room at the table for more chairs, for more people to join the Justice League. You know, that theatrical cut ends in a way that basically says, you know, this is just the beginning. The Justice League is now here and there's more stories to come. And we know that none of that ended up happening. And now I feel like once again, with Zack Snyder's Justice League, barring it somehow being some runaway overnight success, we're unlikely to see a continuation of this. You know, I'm not going to go ahead and, and do the whole cul-de-sac thing, the road that leads to nowhere. But honestly, making it a four-hour movie rather than a, a, a buzzworthy, momentum-building, prestigious miniseries mini event on HBO... You know, they're more or less ensuring that this is a one and done. So that's going to be something that's going to just interfere with some of my enjoyment of, of, of watching this movie. Because, again, it's going to feel like a setup for stuff that's not coming. But what can you do? At least we know that the Snyder Cut is coming. It's coming March 18th. We know what it's going to be about. And we know we're going to get to enjoy it over on HBO Max. And what else we know is that internationally speaking... You're going to get to see it, too, because it, 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 there's been a lot of stuff about that. There, there have been a lot of questions in recent months from international fans who were like, it's great to see all these announcements on Twitter, but how are we going to see this movie? We don't have HBO Max yet. And the good news is it looks like the film is going to be available via traditional HBO means in certain international markets. So as long as you get HBO, it doesn't matter if you get HBO Max, you'll want to subscribe to just the main HBO network, however it is that your country receives it, and you'll be able to see it there. I assume on their on-demand or maybe, the, and there'll probably be a special premiere night. But yes, folks, if you don't have HBO Max, fret not. Today, as part of the announcements, it looks like even through traditional HBO means and in certain markets, even that old HBO Go app, you'll be able to see Zack Snyder's Justice League. So honestly, as long as you have access to HBO, it looks like you'll be able to see this movie. So I knew that they were going to find a way to work this out. There was no way that they were going to let this movie come out only in the States and then leave international markets to either have no choice but to pirate it or to wait a very long time for Max to arrive. So there we go. It looks like HBO is on the case. And for my international uh, viewers and listeners, I hope that makes you feel a little better. You're going to get to see this film. All right. Um, now, something that makes me feel a little better is that a few months ago, I brought up that Falcon and Winter, Winter Soldier series that's coming to Disney+. Plus. And without knowing any real information on what the series was going to be, I brought up the fact that I'm intrigued by it because it could very well tackle some of the same thematic territory as a good Superman series would do. You know, I, I kind of thought that it would be interesting because even though they hadn't announced it at the time, 
you know, if this series is really about becoming Captain America, if it's about Sam Wilson's sort of journey to accepting the shield while taking a complicated look at what being Captain America even means today. You know, what does it mean to be the face of a nation that has no set face right now? What does it feel to be Captain America for an America that's so bitterly divided and that has such such a complicated history? You know, it's um, I, I was hoping that this series would be a little on the heady side, a little on the weighty side. And we got some fresh quotes from the composer of the series, who his name is Henry Jackson. And as, uh, well, he appeared on a podcast and had some things to say about the show. And I want to read you what he had to say because it basically confirmed my dream come true for what this series could be. So Jackson said, Because of the slightly different format of having six hourly episodes, that's more real estate. So there's a bit more opportunity to go down the road into psychological drama and explore backstories because you've got more space to do that in. And in this particular series, there's the very much untrivial and serious issue, particularly now more than ever, about what it means to hold that shield and what kind of a person should ultimately be holding that shield and with the history of this country and how African-Americans would feel about being a Captain America or not. And I'm so sad I can't say more because I'd love to say who's giving those performances and what that's about. But I really can't say anything about the plot. But it's more to say that with the extra time that you've got in this slightly different format, the motivations that people have when they're not in the middle of saving the world and what things mean on a more grounded level have a chance to breathe. So... Listen, that all sounds right up my alley. It sounds like this has the potential to be exactly the kind of show I was hoping it would be, where it's going to have the action and the, and the spectacle and the cool sort of chemistry of Falcon and Winter Soldier, which we got a taste of in Civil War. And I'm very intrigued to see what Steve Rogers' two best buds do now that they're on their own and they've got this shield and we know that Falcon's been selected to be the new Captain America. Yeah, this sounds like a potentially very interesting show. And I'm very sort of pumped to hear that, like, my, my, my sort of unorthodox, hard-hitting take on what this series can be, it sounds like they actually are broaching some of that. So I'm pretty excited. I'm pretty excited, especially when he's bringing up stuff like psychological drama and, and weird political history in this country. You know, once again, I'm the guy who loves allegories. I love when things are poetic stand-ins for other things. That I live for that. And, um, you know, it sounds like Falcon and, and the Winter Soldier is going to be exactly that. So bring it on. Um, yeah, and, and when it comes to that same sort of idea of using these heroes for the greater good, and to, to create messages of positivity that could transcend all of the, you know, the special effects and good guys fighting bad guys and the very sort of simplistic nature of these stories. Um, I got to talk about Wonder Woman 84 again, because while I still haven't had a chance to do that second viewing, there are some quotes from Patty Jenkins that, you know, I love these quotes and I love what her intentions were for this movie. And it's a shame that I ultimately didn't enjoy the film as much as I probably could have. 
had it not been for maybe a, another another draft or two of the script to refine some of these great, big, bold ideas. But let me read to you what Patty recently said, or Miss Jenkins, I should say. I don't know her like that. What Miss Jenkins recently said about what she was going for with Wonder Woman 84. We wanted to talk about something quite a bit more serious than we did with the first film, which is about the crisis facing our world. How do you use a superhero to inspire and reach the people of tomorrow, the kids of tomorrow, and the younger people of the world to save our world? I mean, if we're not doing that with our superhero films, what are we doing? But because it was a more serious subject, I wanted it to be a more enjoyable, visually, ride. And so I loved the idea of the 80s. It countered the seriousness of our message with something fun and delightful. We were celebrating excess, wealth and power and money for no reason. Having it all just because we wanted it. Not because we'd earned it. Not because of hard work. Not because of any of these other things. And of course, I grew up watching the Linda Carter TV show. So it felt like such a wonderful home for Wonder Woman. Oh, man, such awesome like themes and, and high-minded concepts she was going for here. Things that she wanted to tackle about culture and society that I, I love. I wish, I wish she would have nailed it. Hearing that, hearing that she felt that way, hearing what she was going for, really just makes me feel like I wish the movie accomplished that in the way that she was hoping. And I know for you, for, for, for many of you, it did. But for me, that third act kind of undid a lot of the goodwill that I had for the first portions of that movie. Because to me, it just got real silly. And honestly, it's a little weird for me to see her almost sort of down-talking the seriousness of the first film. Because to me, the first film also tackled some really heady themes, but it did it in a way that was much more clearly defined and... You know, I, I don't I, I don't like the idea of her kind of belittling, saying that you know she wanted something more serious than this, because to me, what I love about the third act is that I think the themes are crystal clear. What she's trying to say with these characters, what she's striving for in these closing moments of Wonder Woman, I thought was absolutely jaw droppingly powerful stuff. You know, to me, it was all about good, evil and love. You know, when I, and when I say that is Steve Trevor symbolized the best of humanity. Aries symbolized the worst in humanity. And I know that sounds a little funny because he's Aries, the god of war. But remember, by this point in the story, he wasn't flexing his muscles as some god, some Mephistophelian god who's been, you know, creating wars. You know, at this point, Ares, you know, Daniel Thulis's version of Ares was really just more about nudging people in the right direction and, and encouraging humanity's darker sides to sort of take up arms against itself. So Trevor was the best of humanity. Aries symbolized the worst that humanity can be, and Diana symbolized love itself and how love is the only thing that could conquer hate and truly end war. Inspired by Trevor's you know, insane sacrifice, she decides, I could go ugly and I could try to fight fire with fire and fight your hate with the hate I feel over my sadness. 
or I could use Stephen's sacrifice and how he did this happily and willingly for the good of mankind. It was a, it, what he did was an act of love for us. He gave up his life, but it was an act of love. And Diana, inspired by that love, decides, I'm not going to give in to hate. I'm not going to kill Dr. Poison over here. I'm going to eradicate you, Aries, by, you know, and it just, to me, the themes of what, what Wonder Woman, the first film, was trying to tell us were so beautiful and poetic and grand in a way, and yet simple. It's just simple because it's true. Only love can conquer hate. Only unity can stop war. Only all of us seeing each other as friends and allies, which we really are and we really can be at the end of the day, only that's going to stop war. So, you know, I thought the first Wonder Woman took some rather large themes and presented them in a way where, yeah, you could enjoy just the blockbuster element of watching heroes and villains beat the crap out of each other. But if you look a little deeper about what these forces are fighting for, they're fighting for us and they're fighting to tell us something beautiful about what it's going to take to get us through dark times. And it's not more hate and more division. It's love. So I thought she nailed that in the first Wonder Woman. It sounded like she had similarly lofty goals for Wonder Woman 84, but I don't think she quite stuck the landing. Something else that I hope does stick the landing, though, is Superman and Lois, because something else that's happened since we last spoke is that we got a new teaser. We got a new teaser for Superman and Lois, which is arriving at the end of February over on the CW. And yeah, to me, I was kind of blown away, honestly. Because aside from the new suit, this thing looks and feels a lot more like Man of Steel. You know, the, the tone was remarkably Man of Steel-ish. Even the visual sort of color palette and the sort of just like the way the story is being presented looks more like Man of Steel, which I like. Remember, with, uh, of all of the little quibbles I had with Man of Steel, the tone was never a problem I had. You know, I like my stories with some real depth of emotion to them. I like when there's some heft and seriousness. I like when it's not all just powder, you know, bright colors and by golly gee williker, Superman saving cats out of trees. And this looks like a much more humanistic approach to talking about what it means to be Superman today. And specifically, too, like, the latest teaser looks like it's going to tackle something that really hits close to home for me. And I feel like any father or husband out there could relate to this. But one of the other things in the latest teaser that comes out is Clark's concern that he's a bad father. And I feel like, you know, they don't show all this because it has to be a TV series and everything's going to play out over time. But I think what we're getting at is... He's always elsewhere because he's freaking Superman. He's all over the world saving people all the time. So he's not at home to be there for the day to day of raising his sons and being part of a two parent system with Lois. And so his sons have resentment towards him and they don't, you know, they, they just they want their dad and their dad's never around. And it looks like he's going to have to reveal to them his secret so that they could understand why he's not always around. But to me, it, the fact that they want to tackle stuff like that hits very close to home. Because for me, there was a period there, we're going on almost six years ago now, 
where things in my household almost went completely up in flames. And a big part of that was because I'd become so focused on my outside of the home exploits, focusing on building business and closing deals and making money for the future and, you know, saving for a house and, and trying to build up what I was working on for my DJ career that I really wasn't home very often. I was constantly taking appointments and doing stuff where I was out of the house every night of the week. And then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I was out DJing events. So I was basically like hardly ever home. And that put a lot of strain on what was going on at home. And it put a lot of distance between my wife and I because it was she almost felt like a single mother, you know. And here I am feeling all, oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm I'm building up, you know, I'm building up my business and I'm going to be able to provide all this stuff for my family for years and years to come. And I'm feeling great only to find out that, no, they we need you. You know, part of being in a family isn't just making sure the finances are there or making sure that the bills are always paid. It's also just being around and being with us. And it looks like Superman's going to have to deal with some of that, too. So I'm just very, you know, I, it to me, it's very sort of refreshing that this Superman and Lois show isn't just aiming to be like a creature of the week type deal where it's just every week we're going to see him fight some other super powered bad guy, you know. Um, it seems like it's going to tackle issues of the heart and issues of family and issues of what it means to be a good dad and be a symbol of hope in this continuously murky world that we're finding ourselves in these days. So it looks like it's actually going for that. And it's not going to be some sort of lightweight CW Arrowverse show. It's going to be a, a, a superhero show that has something to say. And I mean, listen, if you're going to give me a superhero show with something to say and it's about Superman, I'm going to be your fan forever. <laughs> Not to mention, too, you know, the fact that this is only going to be about half the length of your average Arrowverse series makes such a difference. Because that means that whatever the budget on this series is, rather than having to stretch it out for 22 episodes or so, which is why the CW shows often look like they have such crappy CG and it looks like, you know, a bunch of kids playing in their backyard and doing their best to make it look like superhero spectacle. Um, part of that is because they have to stretch out that entire budget across 22 or 24 episodes. This one's only going to be 13. So whatever that budget is, it's, it's, it's damn well ensuring that every single one of those episodes looks as good as it can. And it's going to be on a whole other visual level than what we've seen so far at the Arrowverse. Remember, that was another big concern of mine when they announced this show. Like, okay, great, you're giving me a Superman series, but is it going to look like The Flash? Is it going to look even like Supergirl? You know, it, it, like I, I want it to look more like a movie. I want it to look and feel more like something serious, like something you would see on HBO Max. And I was, I, I've been very pleasantly surprised so far because everything we've seen from this Superman and Lois series, it doesn't look like Supergirl. It doesn't look like The Flash or Black Lightning or any of that stuff. This looks almost like cinematic quality movie level production here. So listen. If you haven't checked out the latest teaser for Superman and Lois, absolutely do that, okay? Um, because I'm sold. I'm sold. It's on my DVR. For the first time ever, I'm anxiously awaiting the arrival of a show on the CW.
who am I? But it's happened. It's happened. And um, what else that's happened is that I have managed to sit down and record an interview with Sean O'Connell, the author of Release the Snyder Cut. Just a quick technical note for those of you who are watching the show. Unfortunately, somewhere in the middle of this 37-minute conversation, the audio kind of falls out of sync. I guess maybe there was an internet issue and we were recording it. And at some point, the audio falls out of sync. So our mouths are doing one thing and the audio is doing another. So for those of you who are watching, I'm very sorry for that. For those of you who are listening, enjoy this wonderful interview, this wonderful conversation, I should say, with Sean about the Snyder Cut and, and the book that he's got coming out in a couple days. And he's honestly, he had some things to say that, that, that gave me pause and gave me things to think about. So it was really kind of refreshing talking to him because there was stuff that I was really kind of like salty about after they announced the four hour cut. Like, I'll, I'll just tell you one real quick, something that was really pissing me off or not pissing me off, but something that I'm like, this has to be addressed, was this idea of, well, if you're just going to release it as a movie then, and you're not turning it into a completely other kind of experience, then what's with the $70 million? You know, didn't you tell us that this movie was practically, it, it was done, it was, it was ready to be released. Remember all of that before it got announced? There was all this chat that the movie's just sitting there, it's ready, maybe it just needs like a little teeny bit of finishing work, but it's practically done. And yet, now we started hearing about the $70 million budget, and I was the first to defend that. There were people going, but see, he lied to us, he lied to us. And I said, no, he didn't. Okay, this budget is because they're turning it into a series. There's going to be more filming. There's going to be things that are reworked and have to be reshaped and reconfigured. And and that's why it's costing more. This isn't going to be the original movie that he wanted to release years ago. This is going to be something bigger and grander and different. And then when they announced that, no, it is just going to be a movie. It just, you know, I was ready to be like, well, I guess, you know, I guess we kind of know whether or not it was done or not. But Sean actually has a great take on that and a bunch of other stuff. So enjoy this conversation and meet me on the other side for this week's movie recommendation and a breakdown on what it was like to revisit a seminal superhero movie from this century. And uh, enjoy. All right, so here he is. He's the managing director for Cinema Blend, the co-host of Real Blend, and the author of the Release the Snyder Cut book. It's Mr. Sean O'Connell here on The Fanboy today. How you doing, Sean? I am wonderful, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. You know, it, it's funny. As someone who's been covering this stuff as in as geeky and nerdy a way as I have these last few years, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen people say, Someone should write a book about all this, you know, yeah. or there should be a documentary or whatever. There's so many people who want to see the full story of what's gone on these last few years. And yeah. you're, you've written, you've done it. You've written the release, the Snyder cut book. So I first did. of all, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because like for the longest time I was trying to get Zach to contribute to the book. Mm-hmm. Like I really wanted, um, not his blessing per se, but, but I always felt like if he didn't weigh in, mm-hmm. that the book wouldn't meet its full merit. And when I was told for a long time, um, I, I ended up getting him eventually, which is phenomenal. Like that was, you know, a, a huge crossing the finish line yeah. moment for me. But when, when I wasn't getting him, when I was being told by his people that he wasn't able to talk, I always in the back of my mind kind of thought like, 
oh, he's probably doing something himself. Like, yeah. I'm sure he's putting together some type of documentary yeah. or something that would explain from his point of view everything yeah. that happened. And he still may. I, and I would be the first one in line to watch whatever yeah. he put together for it. So, But you ultimately, and you got him to, you got him to chime in? I did only after he announced the cut uh, on May 20th. Okay. We literally, he, he announced the release uh, coming to HBO Max on May 20th. Yeah. And I spoke on June 3rd. But I'd, I had been pursuing him the entire way and was just told by his people, like, he can't talk, he can't talk, he can't talk. And I, I kind of thought, like, okay. Um, it was interesting. It, I was going back and forth with this whole project of, like, I either have to write it without his contributions mm-hmm. and just feel confident enough in everything that I've put into it. Mm-hmm. Um, or it changes completely if I get him to be in it. Yeah. And there was a breaking point in like March of 2020 yeah. where I met with his reps uh, for an unrelated press event huh. this before the world shut mm-hmm. down. Um, and I said, Hey, is it going to happen? And they were like, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Oh. And I was like, <laughs> it, but honestly, yes, it, that sucked. But, <laughs> but yeah, you're like, like, cool. Okay. Now I know that now mm-hmm. I can finish this. And I did, the book was done before the May 20th announcement. Um, but then when Zach came around to contribute, I was like, cool, I'll rewrite whatever you need me to rewrite. Yeah. <laughs> I'd much rather have your quotes in it. And you know, that's actually, I, it, it just hit me that like you began working on this before we knew it was actually going to come out. Right. Oh yeah. Months so, before. Months so, before. so that must've been kind of like amazing news when that, when that came out. Right. I mean, words will never be able to express yeah. the uh, excitement I have the, like how blown away I am by the timing of it. Because, and one of the things that Zach did say to me in our interview was, um, look, man, I give you a lot of credit because when you started writing this book, it was a total leap of faith for you. Yeah, you, yeah. you didn't know if this, he said he didn't. Like <laughs> right up until we got really close to the announcement, he thought it would still be years before yeah. it ever got released because of whatever feedback he was getting from the studio side and just, you know, how difficult it to me, and maybe we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but to me, the the introduction the introduction of the streaming service mm-hmm. uh, of HBO Max and the freedom to just put something on HBO Max mm-hmm. uh, gave everybody involved uh, an avenue to explore. Because I still say, if Zach was having to rely on the theatrical model to get it out, things are so behind now yeah. because of the del- you know COVID delays and big production schedules being pushed back that if Zach had to try to find a window to get this into a theater and into yeah. someone's rotation, that would be nearly impossible. I mean, you'd be talking years mm-hmm. from now before it even had a chance to see the light of day. Yeah, no, it is pretty amazing how the stars aligned for this, you know, yeah. it, it, and, and it took an unfortunately historic event like the pandemic too, but like all these different things sort of converged into one with, with HBO max arriving with streaming, suddenly becoming the most important thing with Hollywood getting shut down. Like yeah. lots of different things happened that suddenly made people look at the Snyder cut and go, you know what? We, we should make this, we should release this. We should do this, you know? Absolutely. And, and, it's... and yeah, Zach had to have some version of the film ready to go. Yeah. You know, yes, he's needed $70 million to do it. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that. Yeah, I want your take on that. But <laughs> but I think it was close enough, you yeah. know, that, that it would have been ready to go in some format. Yeah. 
Well, actually, since you brought it up, I, I, I am just intrigued by that because there has been a little conversation about like before it got announced as official, he was saying it's basically finished and ready to go. And there was a lot right. of people who were very hardcore with that mindset that it's just sitting there and it's done and all they have to do is release it or maybe just a couple of tiny tweaks. Right. But then we hear $20 million, then we hear $30 million, then we hear yeah. $70 million. So I guess I'm just curious, like, where do you land on that? How do you like... What, why do you think the budget ended up going so high? Was it that it was not as complete as perhaps he was saying? Maybe he was just being a good showman? Or do you think it's like he, they added some new stuff that perhaps wasn't there in the original form? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think what it is is just that the conversation about what format it was going to come out in mm -hmm. was ongoing. Yeah. Um, you know, for the longest time, the movement circled the idea of 214 minutes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah it's 214 true. minute run. Now, so let's 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 do this in pieces. Let's do it. There was the idea that we were going to get a 214 minute run, mm -hmm. you know, a cut. Now we know we're going to get a four hour cut. Yeah. Right. Um. So maybe what Zach meant all the times he was saying it's ready to go is that if HBO Max had said. Hey, we'll drop your 214 minute cut right now. Let's go. Oh, uh, yeah. That's interesting. He would have dropped that. That's a very instead, good point. Yeah. The conversation said, Hey, what if we gave you the ability to do the full four hours? Mm -hmm. You know, what would you need for that? Um, and then he said, Well, I've shot a lot of stuff, but it's not ready. Yeah. I've got a couple of things I would I would have put in if given the freedom to do the full four hours. Mm -hmm. But then they said, Okay, we're willing to invest in that because right now we need original content that's going to lure subscribers over to our side. Mm -hmm. So why not? It, like, if we're going to do this. Yeah, no, that's it. that's a really good point. I, 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 I didn't even think about that. The difference between the 214-minute cut and the four-hour cut, that yeah. is a sizable difference. And it works in conjunction with the recent quotes from him about how he revealed that he actually shot like alternate versions of scenes and he, like he shot some of a lot of his original version on top of the compromised version that he also shot along the way. Well, and think about this as well too. In 2016 when he was filming all of this mm -hmm. and preparing for a 2017 release. Yeah. In his mind, he still thought he was on board for a five film arc. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we know that there were things that he wasn't shooting because in his mind, he thought, I'm going to get this while I'm here. Right? Yeah. Yeah. While I've got these actors, while I'm in this set, while I've got this stuff, like I'm thinking stuff like the nightmare sequence, yeah. you know, that he could have said to himself, this could fit in Justice League part one. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's going to fit in Justice League part two, but at least I have it. Yeah. You know, um, so there's all like, these are some of the questions yeah. that if I ever get him back around again, I want to ask like, you yeah. know, did you have stuff that you were reserving? Because he was thinking long term mm -hmm. and then all of this changed. I know. Doesn't mean I he know. doesn't have all this stuff still waiting there for a place to go. Yeah. But now this the future is uncertain. He doesn't know where it's going to go. So he's saying, forget it. I'm just going to put it all into this. Yeah. Just now. lay it all in there. Go go for broke. Everything but the kitchen sink. We're going for it. Right. Why not? Why and not? it's interesting you bring all that up because that's something I've discussed here on the show a bunch too. Like as soon as they announced it, I started pondering like, okay, so he gets to make it and release it. But yeah. like, which version of it is it going to be? Because there was the original version back when it was going to be a two-part story. Right. Then there was the version where it was somehow condensed down to one. There was the version that he shot that had like Jeff Johns and John Berg and all those people in 2016 basically like rewriting it on the fly. Right, right. And then there was the version in 2017 that Joss Whedon came and you know and he added all his stuff. So it's like there's so many different forms of this story, and I'm mm -hmm. like, 
what version did he is he going to get to call the Snyder cut? You know, did he get to film his original? Is it going to have compromised, you know, John's scenes in it? You know, and I feel like it's all gotten clearer as as time has gone on, but I think it is fascinating like he had such a wealth of potential avenues to explore because of all the different versions of the script and things he got to shoot, right? Absolutely. And and there's no film that doesn't go through some level of yeah, compromise. Of course. Um this one probably had more so than most uh, anticipated. Yeah. And I've never seen the the behind the scenes scrutinized this way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this entire production has lived under a microscope. Yeah. Uh, for three and a half years. Oh yeah. So I in a way I hate that the film cannot live up to whatever bar is being yeah, that's it. Yeah. But, and I want fans to sort of temper their expectations um, yeah. and just embrace it. Like, you know, be really happy that you're getting to see the version. Yeah. Um, because I had had a conversation with a friend of mine uh, at Cinema Blend who is, is not a Snyder fan, mm -hmm. you know, and he would often say like, man, the best thing that could ever happen to that movie is that no one ever sees it because the mythology of it is, is so much bigger than what the yeah. film could ever be. Oh yeah. I get, I get that. Yeah. That an unseen version of it is always going to be in your mind, you know, better than what you get. Yeah. But I still think it's going to be amazing to watch. I think so too. I think yeah. so too. I think, you know, more than anything, what I'm looking forward to is just, let's see what all the fuss was about. Yeah. I want to see his unbridled vision and what it was about this film. Like, I mean, you know, this is sound a little cynical too, but there's a little part of me. It's like, what was it about this that made the studio do the insane things that it did? You know what right. I mean? Like I, there's a part of me that's just like, what, what was it? Like, so a part of me wants to watch it with that question in mind too. Right. You know, because yeah. to me, it makes so little sense, Sean. And I was just ranting about this on the last episode where like the studio signed off on all of this stuff in like 2014, right. 2015. And right. then they seemed to like immediately get cold feet before the even first movie came out, right. you know, because I feel like people discount the fact that BVS also got mangled, you know, that, that half hour, you know, that they chopped off makes them makes Oof. the theatrical cut. Yeah. Like just, it doesn't flow as well. It's not the best version of the story. Right. So the studio, like being so gung ho that, okay, we're going to give you this huge budget. We're going to give you the ability to chart a course for the next five years, including mm -hmm. solos for all these characters. And then before he even gets one movie out, yeah. they're like, now we're going to start making changes and we're going to basically pull the rug out from under all of this stuff, you know? Well, so, I have the answer to that. Oh, if you really like to know it, Mario. Lay it and on me. The, the answer to that is money. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally the answer to all of these questions. Like the yeah. studio executives that that the fans put put almost too much faith in mm -hmm. care about nothing but the bottom line. Yeah. And in their opinion, this is this is what I believe, and this is what I've been able to report. In their opinion, Batman versus Superman should have been a billion dollar movie. Mm -hmm. Like they were watching Marvel across yeah. the street at that time, you know, drop billion dollar movies, like, you know, crumbs coming off of their table kind of thing. Yeah. And um, Marvel to their credit had taken the time to build up to that. Mm -hmm. And DC and Warner brothers specifically wanted it now, you know, yeah. they were like, give me what they have over there. It's, it's a, a financial competition. Yeah. And they panicked. They cold feet. That's the only way to describe it. They panicked and they got cold feet and they transitioned off of Zach's vision. And I don't think, in hindsight, they calculated as much of a mess as it was going to create. Yeah. 
I think they thought they'd be able to to shift gears pretty seamlessly mm-hmm. with with some with some ripples, you know. Yeah. I have said this in, in other podcasts, and I truly do believe this. Whatever movie was coming out at that time that they decided to sh- to shift gears mm-hmm. was going to get mangled in the process. Now mm. it happened in Justice League, but it might have been even if it was Patty Jenkins's Wonder Woman, or or even if it was Shazam, or whatever was due to come out. Mm-hmm. The studio at that moment decided, like, no, we got to shift gears. We got to go more family, yeah. fr- not family friendly, but audience friendly. We got to go a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah, we like more broad on- four quadrant type yeah. of film yeah and it just so happens that the movie that got caught in the crosshairs was zach's justice league and so um and i think because the idea of a justice league movie was so important to dc fans mm-hmm. this is the first time you're seeing these characters together for the first yeah, time this is monumental action. it should be monumental and they deserve a better version than what they got yeah um you know you can go back in some sort of monday morning monday morning quarterback this to death but if the movie that got mangled was Aquaman or Shazam, I don't know if people would be as outraged, you know? Mm-hmm. It's the fact that it was the Justice League movie that yeah. feels like uh, more of an insult on top of injury. It's funny It's funny you say that. It, is, it does feel personal. It feels like yeah. an insult. For like lifelong DC fans who grew up on these characters and in some way, shape, or form have been waiting for this big eventful team-up movie to happen. And they're seeing Marvel have, you know, have so much success with the Avengers and all the stuff they're working on there for justice league to ultimately go through what it did and then have a movie that's comes out, like, opens up to like $93 million and is like instantly forgotten and mm-hmm. has a Superman with a fuzzy face. Like the whole thing feels like an insult. It feels like a slap in the face and more than anything, because I don't even necessarily hate the theatrical cut. I think it's perfectly enjoyable fine bland sure. you know toothless entertainment but it's there it's fine it's not a hate hateable movie for me okay. but to I me the it. biggest but for me like the biggest <laughs> sin is that it's forgettable that that's yeah. the main thing a justice league movie the very first ever of its kind this should right. be a monumental and at least memorable event to me that was just vanilla and bland but you you hated it huh well i hated it yeah uh i hated it because I felt like I cared more about it than the studio did. Mm. And that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, The yeah. studio should care as much. The studio who's getting behind a Justice League movie should want that Justice League movie to be um, as iconic and memorable as you say. Yeah. Like you're meeting the expectations of a fan base mm-hmm. who you're asking to buy into your universe. Yeah. That's what you give them. Like it was almost like disdain. It was almost like, the choices that occurred in that movie were so lazy yeah. and that there were so many things that were truly, I thought, unwatchable in terms of just like quality. Yeah. You know, like this was 2017. This was not 1996 where effects were right. not able to be. And and when I thought that like there were studio executives that looked at certain scenes and said like, yeah, this yeah, is fine. Yeah, that's good enough. You can <laughs> let it out there. That, that was an extra, you know, slap in the face. Fan. Yeah. And here's another point, too, and I've never actually thought about this, but this is truly, this is the case. DC and Warner Brothers at the time did not consider how passionate and dedicated Zack's fans were. That's for sure. Um, And think about if, this is really interesting to play All Caught in the Crosshairs. What What if it was a movie that was directed by David Sandberg? Like, no offense to David Sandberg. Yeah, we have a global fan base that would have been like, I want to see David's version of of whatever movie. Yeah, called. 
Warner Brothers didn't factor that Zach's fans are as crazy passionate and as global as they are. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we don't even have to look at hypotheticals with, like, Sandberg. You know, David Ayer's movie also got fairly redone in post, and he had to reshoot. And, you know, while there is nowadays a release the Ayer cut campaign, almost as a sequel to the Snyder cut thing, right off the bat, though, there wasn't this outcry of, like, we need to see David's movie. You know what I mean? So I think you're absolutely right. Like, Zack Snyder's fan base is something that the studio was not at all counting on. And yeah, it's and it's something I asked you before we began that I'd like for you to just share with with folks checking this out is you know where where exactly does your book start like you know, is it from the release the Snyder Cut movement's birth onward or mm-hmm. the history in it because you sound like you know a little something about the history <laughs> well it's both um, <laughs> yeah. and it really does after May twentieth happened which is the day that Zach Zach hosted a Man of Steel uh, yeah. watch party yeah yeah. yeah. And he made his fans suffer through the full, <laughs> the full film. That film has never felt longer than when we were waiting for the Q and A to start, um, because you know we were all sort of hoping that that was going to be the day. Yeah, there was enough buzz in the community that we thought like this might be the day that mm-hmm. finally. Oh, I remember the buzz heading into that screening. Yeah. So the initial draft of the book did not start on that day because okay. that day hadn't happened. Um, but now the new version of the book starts on May 20th and it okay. starts with um, the reveal. And it start- And then I, t- I, when I interviewed Zach, I said, let's talk about like that day and let's talk about, th- you know, the run up to it for you personally. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the victory lap. What did the victory lap feel like for you? Yeah. So he gave me a lot of really great insight into why he put that, that day together mm-hmm. um, and that in, in a, perfect scenario he would have wanted to hold out for comic-con like you know if we weren't in pandemic he would yeah. have to do a whole age thing where he just he came out on stage and surprised the fans of course then, you know that would have been i mean he is a born showman yes he, is. yes he is yes he knows the crowd um so but then i very quickly get into the history of it and by history i mean like i go all the way back to you know the richard donner superman wow. and batman and i don't i don't dwell mm-hmm. fully on it, but i mentioned it enough to at least show like this is the evolution of comic book movies yeah and we've gone through as fans um a period where you would get haphazard adaptations mm-hmm. just thrown out you know that nothing had to really stick yeah if you found a version that worked like a tim burton batman you might get a sequel and they would develop it you know mm-hmm. sort of spill over but there was never this focus before Marvel started doing it of building an interconnected universe. Yeah. Like even Batman movies, you could replace Batman. You know, you could jump from Michael yeah. Keaton to Val Kilmer and nobody batted an eye. Yeah. Ha, batted. And get like, it. Ha, sorry. Uh, Val Kilmer's and George Clooney's Batman would have the same Robin, but nobody, nobody really. Yeah. You know, that's there true. was no focus on continuity and universe. So I go through all of that. And then it really picks up steam when Zach joins the DCEU. Um, we got, we go through Nolan's Batman movies and then the fact that Nolan picked um, Snyder for, for the DCEU. And then, and then it goes into full swing from that. So it tries oh, wow. to cover as many of the bases. It, it was, I'll tell you, difficult to, to walk a line between who is this book for? Like, yeah. is the book for people who are picking it up who know nothing about it? Is the book for people who remember seeing a Justice League movie but don't really know that stuff went wrong with it? Mm-hmm. Um Versus I still want it to be interesting for people who have gone on this journey the whole way. Yeah. Uh, and I hope to at least in- include some personal stories from people in the movement that even if you are, have been in the movement from day one, you might not have heard before. Yeah. Uh, and it really tries to get into the emotional aspect of, of why people wanted to be in the movement and why they fought so hard. I I can't wait to read that. That sounds awesome. Um, I hope. I hope. 
Now, I also, yeah, I feel like I should bring up because like this week with regard to the Snyder Cut, the big conversation is the form it's taking. I kind of want just your, you know, I want your two cents on it because just to sort of recap, when this was initially announced, the Hollywood Reporter and whatnot were referencing the fact that Snyder might turn it into a miniseries and that he'd even pitched the idea of like cliffhangers and kind of reworking the story to work episodically. Right. And and THR even said that like the executives walked away really pumped with that idea. And -hmm. I thought that was a brilliant way to go personally. I'm like, that's, that's a great way to like build buzz instead of one standalone viewing experience. You make it last for a month or, you know, depending on when you release it, but you make it last four to six weeks and it could build buzz and create water cooler chatter and kind of like, you maybe bring in some of the casuals who are like, "Eh, I'll watch the first episode and see what's up. But now it looks like it's back to being one movie. And, you know, like we said earlier, a four hour cut. And I guess I'm just curious, like, like, how did you feel when you heard that? Frustrated. Yeah. Um, Frustrated because we we don't know. Yeah. Like it costs them nothing to just clarify what it's going to be. And maybe they like this back and forth chatter buzz. Maybe it's building up heat, but I would, I would like to know. Yeah. I would like, the release date and i'd like to know the format yeah i mean uh, you'd think right like <laughs> well how do we well, not have a release date yet for this reason um i'm with you 100 that i think a better format for this film story to succeed is the weekly build up water cooler conversation mm-hmm. that's what's going to get people who are outside the snyder cut bubble Mm-hmm. to come around and say like, all right, I'll check this out. Yeah. Or if the first episode comes out and plays to the base, you know, when the second episode comes out and enough people start to say like, oh, this is totally different than whatever. Yeah. I want, you know, and get on board kind of thing. Then people have the ability to come over and say, all right, I'll give it a shot, you know, and maybe get hooked by it. Yeah. Um, I also really like the episodic nature because I believe it keeps everybody on the same page in terms of what you can talk about. When something yeah. is binged, you never know where someone is in the story, mm-hmm. you know? So you can't come around and be like, did you see that part with Flash? And they'll yeah. be like, dude, don't talk about it. I haven't. <laughs> so I like keeping everybody in the same spot. Yeah. But that's why I don't think, like, I understand why it's an important conversation right now. I'm with you that I wish that they would just give us some details. I think that no matter how it comes out, Zach also has a plan. Like, in a way, you're going to get both. You know, like he's getting the chance to do this. Mm-hmm. He has said he's going to have a four-hour cut available for people who want to watch yeah. in that format. I think he's going to have. I think they're going to be marketing this for the rest of the year. Like you're going to have a collector's edition that you can watch with that has the four episodes and the four-hour cut if you want to do it that way. Yeah. I think what theaters are are safe for us to go back to. He's going to bring it around and let you watch it in an IMAX version. You know, <laughs> he knows that this fan base has been has been chomping at the bit to see this yeah and he's going to give us every possible way for us to be able to watch it in time yeah um for now i just want him to be able to get it out the way that he wants to yeah and personally selfishly i think the best way to to have it cut through the noise of what's available to stream and what can people watch is to do it episodically and build up hype for it uh episode by episode yeah and kind of following up on that, though, in terms of like, I remember the whole uh, cul-de-sac brouhaha last month. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Do you think a four hour cut helps or hurts it being a cul-de-sac? I think it hurts it. Right. Because, because, yeah. Well, I, I mean, we've seen things that have um, hit streaming services. Mm-hmm. And if they don't 
tap into the zeitgeist immediately, they they disappear. Mm-hmm. They get overwhelmed by whatever comes next. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that the Snyder Cut community won't keep this in the conversation. Yeah, they've shown we're very persistent. <laughs> yes, I will never bet against them at this point. <laughs> but it is much harder to cut through the noise, even for something that's truly great. Yeah. Um, you know, go ask Regina King about One Night in Miami and how hard it is to get people to put it on Amazon uh, yeah. Prime and watch it. Or Carrie Mulligan's film, Promising Young Woman, which is tremendous and has some Oscar buzz behind it. And you could still go into, you know, a, a casual group of people who maybe watch two or three movies a year mm-hmm. and ask them what it is. And they'll be like, no, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> such an overwhelming amount of stuff out there right now. Yeah. And then, again, <sighs> Warner Brothers, <laughs> you are getting a second chance with a Justice League. To get product. this right. Yeah. Why are you not screaming from the rooftops, uh, you know, to let people know that this is coming? I don't understand the lack of I mean, on it right now. I mean, I, I don't I don't want to start, you know, with conspiracy theories. I mean, I don't want to be one of those people who, you know, right. had, but it, it, it does almost feel like, you know, are, are there two factions? Maybe you know this better than me, because I hear that there is like a Warner Brothers, you know, proper like the film division, let's say the sure. Walter Hamada end of things. And then there's the Warner Max, which I believe that's like where Jason Kalar is the top dog. And sometimes it feels like the film division may have asked them to like, please just like, just do the four hour cut so we don't have to keep worrying about this. That's just how it feels sometimes. You know what I mean? Like it's the case. Yeah. Um, But it's, it's extremely murky. And until we, you know, we may never know what goes behind, goes on behind the scenes, you know? But well, is and that if there is, you'll write a book about it. No, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Um, you know, the conversation, here's all we can report on. Yeah. We can always report on what's been mm-hmm. front forward, and the rest yeah. of it's all speculation. In the press release for the release of it, um, the, the Warner Brothers executives, I think it was Toby Emmerich, who was quoted as saying, we've heard you incessantly for three years. Yeah. You know, um, we're giving it to you. And in a way, it was kind of like you won, you know, yeah. Forest down and you're getting it. Now, does that mean that behind the scenes, there's a lot of screw those guys? Yes, we're going to give it to them, but I don't want it to succeed. It's very possible. It, yeah, and, it can feel that way at times. Petty people in Hollywood have have, you know, balked over much less. Yeah. So is that possible? Yes. Yeah. Um, however, I think the HBO Max side of it really does want it to succeed. I mean, how could they not? Yeah. <laughs> They have to be looking at the competition at Disney Plus and seeing the success that they're having with mm-hmm. longer form Star Wars and Marvel shows. Yeah. And again, thinking to themselves, why can't we have that? You know, and if Zach has a vision that he can continue um, and if you're looking at James Gunn making, you know, a, a yeah. series based off of his peacemaker. Suicide, yeah. The wheels are turning on that side to continue in longer form television programming. So why wouldn't you buy in? To I know. Something? I mean, to me, that was the big boneheaded thing of that comment, even making it to print the cul-de-sac thing, even though it was an unnamed executive, which yeah. very good on you, coward. But, <laughs> um, you know, how could anyone let that make it to print when it, it, it could potentially dampen the excitement? Like, why why say this is definitely going nowhere and this is just a, a street that goes nowhere and just like, especially if you can be proven wrong later, you know, because if this thing does become a huge success, there will be spinoffs or there will naturally be conversations of following up in some way. So to me, it was just such a perplexing time in an age where anything that's successful gets a sequel, prequel, spinoff, 
and a musical adaptation. You know, exactly. why would you go and like just try from the beginning to say, no, this is it. This is it, it, this is a one and done. And don't even think that we might continue from here. It well, just let me, let me float this out here as a yeah, as a theory. Mm, I like theories. Maybe that was just the uh, the author of that piece, you know, you think with an axe to grind against Zach and Zach's fan base, you know? Yeah. Like, there, there are still plenty of people in the media who are annoyed that this cut is coming, yeah. you know? And Which is ridiculous to me. I have put out on social media saying that, like, there's a bunch of negative reviews for this thing written right yeah. now. Yeah, <laughs> just waiting to hit publish, right? They're, they're sight unseen. Yeah. And I've been yelled at by uh, my colleagues who say, how can you possibly believe that anybody would review this? And I'm, I'm and look, I'm telling you, I, I think they've had, they have negative pieces written. Yeah. Not out of the realm of possibility that the author of that piece for the New York times is just annoyed that he's still covering the Snyder cut, <laughs> you know, like why yeah. am I still writing about the damn yeah. Snyder cut years later and put a quote in from an unnamed source, mm -hmm. which could just be a friend of his who works at Warner brothers who says like, that's an oh, interesting point. Yeah. Anything like this again, so he puts it in at the bottom of the article and, and thinks it'll fly under the radar, but he got his little dig in yeah, um, and doesn't realize that that's the, the bit that's going to get highlighted and circled and shared by everybody. Because again, every element of this movie lives under <laughs> every a element, everything I know. Um, so I read that and thought like, oh, you got in a cheap little dig. When I first read that, I thought like, oh, you have a whole feature mm -hmm. that that has that's just quote after quote by Hamada, Jim Lee, like all these guys who are willing to go on record. And at the bottom of that piece, you put in a, a tiny little from an unnamed executive. Oh, by the way, this is also going nowhere. And I thought, like, oh, that, yeah, that what a cheap little shot you put in there. Absolutely. And you won't cite, you know, who said it to you when you just cited everybody else above you, mm -hmm. which is fine. That's the prerogative of that reporter. Yeah. But it was funny to see Kevin Smith a couple of days later. Like his reaction was my reaction, which was just like. Why would you even say yeah. that? Yeah, even came out. Why would you even say that? Like that's stupid to even cut yourself off in the knees. And I don't. And I don't believe honestly that Warner Brothers or Warner Max feel that way. You yeah. know, like I don't think that they are that stupid. Um, because <laughs> as you say everything gets a prequel or a sequel or a yeah. musical spinoff. <laughs> money for them they're going to that's keep it. it like you said earlier it's all about dollars and cents if this if thing spikes business they're gonna naturally want more you know but look i know i've only got you for a couple more minutes and i want to end on, on, a, on a happier note you know when it comes to the snyder cut i'm just curious for you of the things that got cut or mangled or reworked what are you most excited to see kind of brought back into the movie, you know, brought back into the experience. Is there anything? Yeah, what? Two things. Um, I want to see Flash properly used. Uh, mm. I, I love Flash. I think Flash has so much potential. Yeah. Uh, I think Flash was extremely watered down in the theatrical cut. Mm -hmm. Used for comic relief in the worst possible ways. Um, I hated, hated the decision to make him uh, a coward, you know, mm. who was afraid to go into, into battle. Um, and I just, I can't wait to see him under Zach's guidance. Nice. I want to see more of his backstory. I want to see more of that filled out. Yeah. Also, um, everything with Superman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also feel a big part of uh, the, a, a fault of the way that Superman has been structured to date so far is that he hasn't necessarily had his chance to shine in Zach's universe mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. um, he spends most of Man of Steel doubting whether he should exert his power to the fullest yeah. extent. 
and only really becomes Superman in the final few minutes of the movie, right? Yeah. Then he gets his sequel, but his sequel is still very much a a Batman movie. It's a better Batman movie than it is a Superman movie. Mm -hmm. Well, I think both of them are are good in it, but it also has to, at the time, that movie had to serve so many masters in terms of setting up the other members of the League and working in uh, Wonder Woman to a certain extent, setting up Darkseid, introducing Lex. There's a lot of stuff going on in that movie. Yeah. Then you get Superman Returns in Justice League, and it's just not a good version. And I mm -hmm. know Zach has more in store for him. I just yeah. know he does. And so I can't wait to see both how Flash and Superman are properly handled because we've had the ability to see, um, you know, Wonder Woman has shined in, in her sequel. Uh, Jason got to do an Aquaman movie. And mm -hmm. uh, Ben, I thought, got a lot of Batman versus Superman. And so I'm excited to see those two characters play out. Very much so. Very well, much. listen, you're not going to hear any arguments from me as a diehard Superman fanatic. That is the top thing I'm most looking forward to. You know, I was talking the other day about how, like, if we can get a second flight, you know, because first flight gives me goosebumps and it makes me yeah. just, you know, a big weepy mess on the couch. If I can get a second flight type of sequence to see Superman soar in quite that way. And people say that there are storyboards that such a sequence does exist. So that yeah. right there, I mean, the movie could be seven hours. I need that sequence, you know, so I'm most you know, I'm like, uh, I believe in truth. <laughs> I, also I also believe in justice and I also uh, believe I in scene too on a third pa kent you know a, a, another pa kent reunion mm. with him passing on the last bit of advice to his son yeah uh before clark is able to come back to the world here's a question for you oh. uh someone brought it up to me on another show and i don't have an answer for it uh zach has put the death of clark kent in in his canon it's part of bvs like yes. the kansas ceremony and there's a, a newspaper yeah. article do you think the snyder cut is going to address the return of clark kent somehow I mean, I hope so. You know, honestly, that was one of the creative decisions that I was a little confused about in yep. in BVS. You know, because in the comics, he just goes missing. So it's a little more understanding when Clark returns, even though it yeah. happens to be the same time Superman does. But like, yeah, like, OK, you, so you were going to explain Superman's back from the dead. But what are you going to say for all the people who knew Clark and buried him in Smallville? Yeah, I, I'm very intrigued if they're going to address that or if this is possibly another one of Snyder's creative flourishes. You know, he, he has certain strong opinions about the Superman mythos and he wanted to modernize it. You know, remember, he 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 kind of has thoughts on on uh, Jimmy Olsen. He kind of has you know, he, he has his own way of wanting to th this story to be portrayed. Maybe he doesn't think the Clark alter ego is needed. Maybe that's why he killed him off and he just wants Superman around. I don't know. But. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And your yeah. book is going to be really interesting. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, so. Do we have a release date? Yes, March 1st. March 1st. Uh, March 1st. It's available for pre-order right now everywhere you get uh, books sold. If people want to go through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any of the chains, it's available there. If people want to go through, um, there's a website called bookshop.org yeah. that supports um, independent bookstores in your town. It'll help you find a place where it's being carried. Uh, there's an ebook version that's going to come on March 1st also. Uh, and I'm working on an audiobook version as well, too, that I hope to have ready by uh, March 1st as well, too. It's just getting that's... the person into the, into the booth to, rec to record it uh, as quickly as we can. But um, all of this stuff is happening. But the book is coming on March 1st. That's huge. And, and how can people find you over on the Twitter if they want to pick your brain about this? Sure. I'm at Sean underscore O'Connell. Um, and then the book has its own Twitter handle, too. It's RTSC. Uh, for release to Snyder Cut, RTSC book. So give it a follow. And uh, hopefully between now and the next few weeks, there's going to be a ton of promotion and 
I'll be able to pop by shows like yours yeah. and, say hello and answer questions and just geek out about all things Snyder Cut. Yeah, maybe like Zach, you'll get to run your own victory lap when that gets out, you know? And I feel like I'm working harder to promote this book <laughs> than Warner Brothers is to promote the Snyder Cut. Like, the more I keep doing shows, the more I'm thinking, like, why are you guys doing stuff? Yeah, yeah. I well, have a little book to push, so. Well, I'm very appreciative that you came here on this show to talk about your book. I can't wait to read it. Everyone, release the Snyder Cut March 1st. Sean O'Connell, thank you so much for coming on, my brother. Anytime, man. Great question. It's a good conversation. What a great guy. What a great guy. Uh, I hope to have Sean on again in the future. But for now, do be sure to check out his book, Release the Snyder Cut, coming out on February 1st. Now, let's talk some quick recommendations before I uh, leave you be. Uh, I'm actually going to sneak in one before the movie referral. If you're looking for a TV series, you could do much worse than Ted Lasso. Uh, Ted Lasso is available over on Apple TV. If you have a chance to get maybe like a free trial of the service it's a very easy to binge show i watched the whole season over the course of a couple of days uh, again two or three episodes at a time because i don't binge you know hours and hours and hours anymore uh, but yeah i i saw the entire season in a matter of about two days it's 10 half hour episodes and i was blown away i didn't know what to expect i thought ted lasso would just be you know some funny, quirky, fish-out-of-water story. Oh, it's a football coach who gets flown to London to coach a soccer team, and hilarity ensues. You know, I really thought that was sort of it, but what I found was a deeply satisfying and emotional story about a man going through incredible heartbreak who is trying to build up everyone around him at the same time. And showing that being a coach isn't just about coming up with plays, but by trying to encourage people to be the best versions of themselves. And it's a really sort of touching, heartwarming story in that way. And some of the stuff that he deals with, I don't want to spoil anything for those of you who haven't seen it yet, but some of the things going on in his personal life uh, actually brought up a lot of, 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 of some of the hardships that I mentioned earlier in this podcast, where six years ago, I was facing the very real possibility that, that my life as I knew it was about to change forever and I was losing these things that had meant the world to me. And uh, Ted Lasso's character is dealing with, with stuff on that scale. And the way he deals with it and the way the show develops those ideas, I mean, I couldn't believe how many times I freaking cried watching Ted Lasso, a Jason Sudeikis sports comedy. I love Jason Sudeikis, by the way. But yeah, I was, it's, it's a surprisingly emotional and rich experience. So if you have not yet checked out Ted Lasso, you absolutely should. But now in terms of a movie. So remember, I brought up on the last show that I was thinking of bringing back movie referrals, but with a twist in that I'm going to watch the movies first and then decide if I want to refer them still. Because I have a long list of movies of, from my entire life that I feel are like are my favorite. They define my taste. They are, or there's something about them that to me just exemplifies the magic of movie making. You know, I have a long list of films that have, that have meant something to me over the years. 
And the funny thing about that is most of them I've only ever seen once. So now I'm kind of on a mission to go and do a rewatch of all my favorites. And as I do that, share with you what I'm what it was like to rewatch it. And th- this week's referral is the original Spider-Man, the one by Sam Raimi, starring Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst, and James Franco. Oh, and of course, Mr. Willem Dafoe, the ever hammy Willem Dafoe. And, you know, I got to tell you, I was kind of blown away. It's been a very long time since I've seen that movie, and I was fully prepared to think that the effects look terrible, that this Spider-Man is going to seem so unbelievably flat compared to what we've been seeing these last few years with Tom Holland and you know him being involved with the Avengers and all that. I remember kind of thinking like, yeah, I don't know if this thing's going to age very well. You know, it was a big deal when it came out in 2002, and it really kind of ushered in the modern Marvel era. But, you know, I'm probably going to have to enjoy it just for what it was at the time. And what I was blown away about was, uh, first of all, I think it's a great version of Spider-Man's origin. And I'm really happy that my kids now have that, especially my son. You know, Sebastian has been obsessed with Spider-Man now for about two years. You know, even though I've gotten him into Superman, Spidey is still like his main go-to hero who he adores. And it dawned on me that this kid has never actually seen like the proper Peter Parker origin because these modern Marvel Spider-Man movies haven't touched it. He doesn't know about Uncle Ben. He doesn't know about the original, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. He doesn't, he's never seen Peter get bit by a spider in a lab. He's never seen a more traditional version of Aunt May, you know? So I was really kind of happy to see that like this origin story really does hit up all of the vital bullet points of what the Superman mythology is based on. But also the effects hold up remarkably well 19 years later. The web slinging looks really good. I I thought he was going to look terrible, you know. And honestly, aside from like some stuff before he gets the suit, like when it's just Peter Parker in street clothes jumping from rooftop to rooftop, it looks a little hokey, a little cartoonish. The detailing on Peter doesn't look nearly like what it could and should look like for photorealism's sake. But no, the web slinging and the stunt work was actually all like phenomenal. And really, you know, my main two gripes with the movie are, you know, Green Goblin's plot is still sort of aimless after he satisfies his original mission. Because remember, the main reason that... that Uh, Norman does what he does is because they're going to take Oscorp away from him and he wants to teach the board a lesson and he wants to get revenge on them for trying to take away the company that he started. But the thing is, after that World Unity Day thing and that Times Square scene where he comes and basically kills all of them, from that point on, Green Goblin's sort of aimless. And his plot becomes, uh, well, hey, uh, Spider-Man, you want to join me? And we can rule the city like a couple of cartoon villains would? You know, it just, like, the villain plot is very underbaked. Especially when it's like, they didn't develop the relationship between Norman and Peter enough to make me feel like, you know, Norman's internal conscience 
is 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 doing everything it can to not kill Spider-Man because he you know he respects Peter and he thinks of him like a son. You know, like th- there could have been more drama there to build up to why he doesn't want to kill Spider-Man. He wants them to work together, but instead it just all feels very arbitrary and empty. So the Green Goblin plot continues to be just kind of like an unfortunate aspect of that movie. And Toby Toby Maguire being kind of that more awkward Peter Parker, that more like spacey, bug-eyed, aloof, weird, awkward Spidey. Um, you know, especially when he's in Peter mode. But like, I still just don't care for Toby's version of Peter Parker one bit. And I wish his Spider-Man had more wisecracks. But all in all, I thought as an origin story... It still works really great. I still think it looks really good. I love the, the the tone and the version of New York City that they represent. And that version of J. Jonah Jameson is still iconic. You know, Spider-Man holds up, guys. If you haven't seen Sam Raimi's original in a long time, check it out. Let me know what you think. It's not available anywhere for free, so you'll have to throw in a, a disc if, you've owned one, if you own one. Or you'll have to plop down four bucks like I did to rent it. But... It absolutely holds up and you really see like the early blueprint, especially because, you know, Kevin Feige was an exec producer on that. And you could see how like that film sort of set the blueprint that he would try to follow once the Marvel Cinematic Universe became a thing. So it's just very interesting. And also just in terms of like film history, you know, because this became Marvel's first big franchise. Finally, Marvel was on the map. After years and years and years of Superman and Batman and DC Comics really, you know, being the only game in town when it came to superhero fare, you know, yeah, we had X-Men in 2000, which did relatively well. But in 2002, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man really began this modern day superhero renaissance as we know it. And then that was actually two weeks ago that we saw that. Last week, we continued. We saw Spider-Man 2. And once again, you know, real good time, real, you know, it's a movie that I consider a very good movie, but for some reason, I just can't get behind that whole instant classic thing that a lot of you guys have been basically trying to convince me of for the last 17 years since that movie came out. To me, it's not an instant classic, and I don't necessarily get why there's so much love for Spider-Man 2, but listen, it's it's a great ride. It's a very good movie. It's better than the first Spider-Man for sure. And my kids loved it. But uh, yeah, this whole instant classic thing with Spider-Man 2, I still feel like someone needs to explain to me what's such a big deal about this movie. But uh, listen, that's your referral for this week. Check out Spider-Man directed by Sam Raimi. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at how well it holds up. I know I was. And if you're willing to check out Apple TV or take a free trial or whatever, I got lucky in that AT&T offers a free year of uh, Apple TV with my new unlimited plan. So I'm getting HBO Max and Apple TV basically for free right now. So holla. Thank you, AT&T. Thank you, corporate mergers. Um, but yeah, I, Ted Lasso would definitely be something that I think you should check out on the small screen. All right, folks. So sorry for keeping you waiting. But hopefully you enjoyed this week's episode of the Fanboy Podcast. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.